Edgar Allan Poe's most famous literary production, The Raven, is an amazingly strange poem. It's about a man who is bereaved because he has lost love. And the poem holds a prose of him trying to basically figure it out. So if you've read it, he kind of goes back and forth and he says things like, can I get her back? Or do I have to move on? Or will I ever be happy again? But we all know what happens with this infamous, famous poem, don't we? A raven entered this man's studies, his study, it perches itself and speaks, what is its word? Nevermore. It says nevermore. The raven's sermon to the debased man is basically the irreversibility of life, the inability to undo. The raven is telling him when things are gone, they're gone. The raven's telling him when things are dead, they're dead. Simply, the raven says, there are irretrievables in this life. Now, nearly 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday much like this, two distraught ex-disciples experienced the raven sermon as they walked about a seven-mile stretch of road separating a place called Jerusalem to a small village called Emmaus. So that's about basically the same distance from here to Hollywood, okay? And they were forced to console each other. Why? Their Messiah and their dreams had both just been crucified. And as they walked slowly, there was this deep, dark disheartment, and they were dismayed, and they were disappointed, and there was this dispirited air in their lungs. But more than that, there was fear. Now, not the kind of fear that some of you have with clowns or the fear that we have like eating at a bee restaurant or anything like that. Not that. There was more of this type of fear that was a horrible, horrible fear. And it's the fear of this. It's a fear that comes from the realization that perhaps nothing will make a difference in life. That was the fear they had. That just maybe our dreams and our hopes point to nothing more than colored eggs and chubby little Easter bunnies. Anyone here this morning possess that kind of fear that nothing is going to make a difference? If so, it is leading you to choose the road to Emmaus, may I ask? The road to Emmaus is basically like the sign at the portals of Dante's Inferno, which says, all hope abandon ye who enter here. That is the road to Emmaus. It's a road which forces us to to easy answers or to artificial artificial pleasantries or, or, or forced optimism. You see, up to this point in our story, there was rumors of a resurrection. There was rumors of an Easter. And the whole city of Jerusalem, even the entire Roman Empire, heard of it. And the gospel mills were running at full capacity. It was trending. It's the kind of thing that if CNN would have been there, they would have done it live. And for what it's worth, there are at least 15 historical references to Jesus meeting people, touching them, talking with them, eating with them, After his death, the Bible says 500 people encountered him after he had risen from the dead. And yet, and yet, none of these rumors detoured these ex-disciples. It was irretrievable loss. It was nevermore. It seems as if they were thinking, despite the rumors, who cares? Who cares that Jesus Christ did this or did that? Is anybody saying that this morning? Easter is the most fantastic claim a faith system can make, that Jesus rose from the dead. 
but it seems for the classic story in Luke's Gospels only, it's less about whether or not it happened and more about whether or not it matters. They did not care it happened. They want to see if it matters. So my task today, as every other Easter preacher this morning, as I conceive it, is to try and persuade you of the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for now. For your sexuality, to your finances, to your relationships, to your hope. So with your permission, I would like to eavesdrop in on this ex-disciples journey. So look at verse 13 of chapter 24. And the disciples were talking with each other. I believe these people were a married couple, husband and wife, Cleopolis and Mary. And if you don't believe me, check John 19 in the Bible. If you're a Bible nerd and you want to go, just go for it, whatever. And it says, verse 15, while they were walking, pay close attention to this. While they were walking, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This to me is a wow moment. There's something precious in this picture of Jesus walking with us, walking with those in our absolute darkest of hours. As if these people were the only two people in the entire world. Verse 17, Jesus said, what is this conversation? And they stopped, dead in their tracks, looking sad. Verse 18, they answered him, and I'll add quite cynically, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem, who does not know the things that have happened in these past days? Have you been under a freaking rock? Are you off Twitter? It's as somebody comes up to somebody in September 12, 2001 and say, what's going on lately? But ironically, he's the only one in the land who actually knows what's happening. So Jesus, in my opinion, I think he giggles at verse 19. So they're saying, are you the only one who doesn't know? And Jesus probably goes, what things? And that's how I interpret it. What do you mean, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus, a man who is prophet, mighty indeed, so insane miracles, and words, super fresh teaching, before God and all the people. In verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. They know the rumors. We have to understand this that we think it's hard today to believe in a physical, body, body, you know, bodily uh, resurrection. They were far more skeptical than any of us in this room. Greek and Romans didn't believe in a resurrection. They believed that you needed to be separated from the body. Jewish people believed in a final, more creation-type res- resurrection, but not a bodily resurrection. But then, to add to these ex-disciples' skepticism and broken dreams, look at this. Look at verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. Some women. One Greek pagan philosopher in the second century who hated Christianity, this was one of his main cases against the resurrection and trying to prove that it was a myth, is the testimony of women. He said, we all know women are hysterical. His words, not mine. He said it. But why did he say this? Because in ancient culture, women were marginalized. But the Bible, the very word of God, holds eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus, not as ancient gospel, but as verifiable truth. Because if you account, if the account, if we think about it, was fabricated, you would not use women as your witness unless it happened. 
And for what it's worth, all these names like Cleopolis and others mentioned in the Gospels, in ancient times, by name dropping, you were essentially given historical account. So eyewitness testimonies, you have to view them as like footnotes. Basically, they were saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They're right there. There's a real name. Go ask these people. So all of this leading these broken pilgrims to say, look at verse 21. This is so important. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. What extremely depressing words. Nevermore. For those here this morning with nevermore hopes, how would you finish the sentence of these ex-disciples? But we had hoped that Jesus would affirm me. But we had hoped that this Jesus would have saved her. But we had hoped that this Jesus would heal or give or avenge or fix or solve or repair or fulfill. Their disappointment was a result of wrong expectations. They expected a conventional king after the model of pharaohs and Caesar. They expected Jesus to be this war-raging God. But what they ended up with in their mind was a failed, homeless prophet. The question for us today is, where does our wrong expectations come from? Have you ever thought about that? Where does our wrong expectations come from? One thing we've learned from physics is the observer effect. Any smarty pants here know what that is? The observer effect, huh? Hawthorne. Hawthorne, sure. Whatever that means, I have no idea. <laughs> Smarty pants. That was a test to see who's here is the most humble. You failed. <laughs> Hawthorne apparently said, the observer effect. It's the act of observing and its effect on any object. I'm just joking, Cassandra. For example... If we are going to do right now a blind burrito tasting, if we're going to do that right now between the heavenly manna of Taco Bell, if we're going to do that and the demonic pagan world of Del Taco, to hell with it. If we're going to do that right now, what you would do is, what I would do is remove branding labels, right? We'd remove the branding labels. Why? Because participants will associate previous preference with current experience. There it is. Participants will associate previous preference with current experience. Our inability to disassociate our expectations from our current experience is lacking as humans. Which is why most of our theology, Christian here or not, to some degree is an autobiography. Okay? So for these ex-disciples, it's almost as if Jesus is wanting to hear their story. Tell me what's going on so he can figure out what kind of God they believe in. But here's the trouble with Jesus. He's not bound by our expectations that we create based on inferior experiences, relationships, products, or dreams. Author Eugene Peterson helps us get there. He says, Jesus does not always meet our expectations does not always give us what we ask for or what we think we need. When he doesn't, here it is, when he doesn't, we feel that down, deflated, disappointed, or we are sure to abate channel on the TV or we, we try out another church that will help, hopefully to give us what we ask for. So please hear me ever so closely. When God ordains things to happen contrary to our expectations, and that's what the resurrection is, a contradiction to the way we know things to be, 
But the mourning of our expectations, the grieving of our expectations, the times when we doubt his word, faith, and lose sight of Jesus does not mean he has lost sight of us. Christ is walking with two people who are leaving the faith. He's walking out with them. Christ is with two people who are utterly lost. The nevermore is not with our Messiah, but with our expectations. So could it be possible that all the while, for those here who have maybe, possibly, currently, walking away from Christ, walking away in disappointments with God, that Jesus is with you, Jesus was there the entire time. One of the things that I love that the resurrection proves in this particular episode is it doesn't give them all they are expecting or wanted. Are we seeing that? These ex-disciples all of a sudden didn't get their new government or the expectations met. The resurrection gives them and gives you and gives me a living someone, a living relationship, a living hope. And frankly, that is the most important thing we can offer anyone as collective church, a living Jesus. The very Jesus who burst into our world of space and of time and of matter and of real history and real people and real life. And if we're honest, our minds, like the ex-disciples and our imaginations, are too small or too distracted to contain him. So we do our best to put the sea into a teacup and believe because this, Christians, is where our faith begins. Please hear that ever so closely. This is where our faith begins, at the precise spot that all skeptics, atheists, doubters say it should end. Where the rest of the world is saying, no, that's when I'm done with Jesus. And Christians say, no, that's where I began with Jesus. So let's answer our question that began, that we began with, which is why does any of this matter? Why does what happened 2,000 years ago matter now, Casey? For the same reason Jesus stopped these travelers, grabbed them by the shoulders, shook them, and said, verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Why does any of this stuff matter? Here it is. Pay close, close attention. Without a physical, historical resurrection, there is no hope that God is actually doing something transformative in the here and now. Without a living object for our faith, what in the freaking world are we doing? There's far better things you could be doing right now, like blind burrito tasting. This would be foolish. This would be lifeless. So allow me to explain. I want to explain this fuller. Jesus, by paying the price of our wrongdoing towards God, sin, and I I believe we all are mature enough to realize that humanity is riddled with the plagues of self-autonomy or self-authority. I don't have to make a case that in today's day and age that the moral standard we all know to be true is not being met. The New Testament describes it this way. In the book of Ephesians, it says, And you were dead, dead, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked following the course of this world, culture's wrongdoing, following the prince of the power of the air, the enemy's wrongdoing, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, our wrongdoing, and among whom we all, excuse me, among we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Casey, get to the freaking point. My point is this. We cannot accept Easter until we accept the cross. 
Jesus said to them, stop being silly. Did you not know that there was a pattern? Suffer, then glory. If Jesus suffered by paying the price of our sin that separated us from the Lord, but then if God can't raise one man as a receipt, can't raise one man as a guarantee that the suffering was paid in full, then why should we trust this God at all? Without a resurrection, there is no good news. Is this breaking in this Easter Sunday morning? Do not trust, do not trust, do not trust the God of the Bible if Christ is buried six feet underground. But if Jesus is alive, and I believe there's ample proof, then sign the deed of your life over immediately. Because faith in the resurrection is a lived sense that God is still in charge of both death and life. The one who can beat death has the right to redefine life. This is why Easter matters now. It was once said, the resurrection is more than a consolation for what you've lost. It's the restoration of all that we've lost. Basically, this is more than a cheery Sunday morning, consoling notion. This is a Valerian steel guarantee. Y'all with me? Easter is our guarantee of future restoration. Easter is our guarantee that God is who he says he is. Easter is our guarantee that Christ's resurrection means our resurrection. It's our guarantee that we can hope bigger and wider and deeper. Easter is our guarantee that nevermore has no place in the Christian faith. That New Testament book continued to say in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, But God... Not but you, not but Casey, not but any of you, but God, but God, but God, but God. Being rich in mercy. What does that mean? It means we cannot deplete God of mercy. He is the Scrooge McDuck of mercy. Swim in its gold, okay? Because of the great love with which he has loved us. That's a love that has an aim. It's not that all of a sudden he's loving. No, it's a love that's aimed towards at you and at me. In verse five, even we are dead in our trespasses. made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So this Christ slash stranger on the road just asked, oh, foolish ones, do you not understand yet the ways of God? Do you not understand how I work? So I pose the same question to you. You were dead, Christians, but now alive in Christ. Do we understand? God raised Jesus from the dead, thus he raised us up with him. Resurrection defines Jesus. Resurrection defines you. We were sin dead. We are resurrection alive. Again, Eugene Peterson says, welcome to resurrection country. Welcome. Friends, what country are you living in? A country of earning? A country of religion? A country of past sin? A country of shame? A country of guilt, of bitterness, of idolization, of busyness? If so, here's the best news you're ever gonna hear. Let me tell you, Easter is for you. Easter is for you. Easter is for those only who know that goodness nor guilt 
Charity nor civility, morality nor generosity can save them, can save you. Christ is offering himself a living hope to the weak, the humble, the defeated, the sinners, the desperate, and the in need. But only if you want it. Only if you want him. Coming to his grace, receiving it as a gift with the empty hands of faith. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. I'm just going to keep going unless you guys want me to come in. So he's going. Verse 29. Oh, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So if anything I've been saying this morning, or any resurrection truth to be actualized in our life, it must be received as a gift, period. Why? Revelation 3 says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He stands there and he waits. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be with him. So know this about God. Know this about Jesus, if you're new to this. God never overpowers. God never twists arms. He does not push our face into something as to take away our freedom. God is not a coercive force. Our Lord sees it good for us to express our love by helping gently holding mercies out there until we know we want them and ask for them. So God draws out our desires, our spiritual affections, by giving us the freedom of choosing. Choosing to invite him in. Now some of you might be considering this right now, going, I don't know that much about him. And you're telling me to invite him in? It's okay, the stranger, these ex-disciples didn't know that much about him as well. He was a stranger. But... They invited Christ into their homes. And once that happened, we witnessed everything, everything, everything changed. Look at verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. Uh, with your permission, I wanted to show this painting, if we have it. Oh, it's barely lit. Dang it, these stupid lights. I want you guys to see, and as hard as it is to see, do the best you can. Do you know what this is? It's a painting by a Spanish painter named Diago, but in the distance, in the background, we have the travelers and the strangers sitting together. But look at the foreground. Look at the foreground. I want us to notice the servant girl. I want us to notice everything around her. Again, it's hard to notice, sadly. But if you can ever look at this painting later, it'll blow your mind because what this artist interpreted was bowls were starting to slant by themselves. Porcelain was turning over by itself. Carafts were upside down. My point, that all of this was symbolism for what happens to a person who receives Christ. They symbolize first open eyes, a revelation to see clearly for the first time. Everything changes. And these guys, their eyes were finally open physically because their eyes were open spiritually. And the reason they couldn't see before up to this point is because they were foolish. They were not believing. 
But now they see him clearly as they see themselves clearly, as they see their current situation clearly, and now they see their purpose clearly. Then second, their hearts went aflame. Why? Because he shared rightly how the Bible has been leading us to this very moment, a living someone. And you say, who cares? What does that mean? What that means is that Jesus is disillusioning them. He's freeing them. He's freeing us from false hopes, false expectations. This is what knowing the supreme truth of the resurrection does. It shows Christ at the absolute center, and we can see that absolutely clearly. So if I can speak to you, what illusions do you need removed? What disillusions do you need removed from Christ or from Christianity today? That if you follow Jesus, you have now become homophobic? Does that need to be removed? That if you follow Jesus, you now have to become judgmental? Does that need to be removed? Is there a disillusion that we think God is an immoral monster? That God is absent in your pain? That Christ in Christianity, that all of a sudden, if I start following him, I gotta throw away all of my Metallica CDs? That I can only watch PG movies only? That I have to have some like 18 kids and wear holy underwear? What is it? So allow me to finish by speaking to two particular sets of people. We're going to wrap it up this way. Those who say the resurrection matters and those who say it doesn't. Okay, First to those who say it matters. These renewed disciples encounter who Christ fully was, most fully, most fully in the common. At a dinner table, over bread. Revealing to us that Jesus can be found in the most mundane, unremarkable, middling, small places of our lives. Because if you can find Jesus in a grave, you can find Jesus in death, you find Jesus in hell, where can you not find Jesus? I say that to an inspire and assurance to always ask the question in our life, where can Jesus be found in this? Because he's there. Today, Christians, as you come up at your leisure to take communion, Stack cups on my right and on my left, the bread and the drink. Know that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Not remembering some long forgotten ancient truth, but remembering that he's, our, he's in our midst, no matter how normal, small, failing, broken, and human it may be. And these disciples then look at verse 33. And they arose that same hour and they ran seven miles back to Jerusalem and they found the 11, the other disciples. My point, they joined others. Because the resurrection was about restoring a privatized, isolated faith, but a life which is outward-facing, outward-serving, outward-confessing. If you're here today believing in Christ, but you're not a part of a spiritual family or a church community, I say it gently, but I say it firmly, you are living a half-life. We'd love to welcome you to this family and or help you find one where you can best engage. But even in the midst of today, even in this moment, I, I want to encourage you to go to others. We're going to have prayer people over here. They're going to be wearing yellow lanyards. They're going to be in this corner up next to the garage, this garage door. If you need prayer for anything, insecurities, hopes, fears, allow us to be the church and pray for you. But now if I can divert my attention to those here who find the resurrection absurd and impossible, let me say this to you. I outrageously respect you. The resurrection's way too much. I respect you. 
I have way more respect for those who reject the resurrection because it's too tremendous to believe or accept versus those who believe it and have nothing to show for in their life, their desires, or their hope. I believe wholeheartedly, and it sounds like you might as well, what one German philosopher said many years ago. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is very unusual. Oh my goodness, yes. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. There's a question I often ask in this room from this janky pulpit. And it's a question that operates as a crowbar of sorts. And the question is this. At the very least, don't you want all of this to be true? Those of you who reject the resurrection, at the very least, don't you want all of this to be true? Why wouldn't we? Even if you don't like this or that about certain ethics or morality and scripture, just start with the living Jesus. Because trusting in living Jesus means a joy that can't be stolen. Trusting in a living Jesus means a death that has no sting, a pain that is not purposeless, an identity that is unchangeable because of a love that is unconditional because of a God who is unshockable. Ex-disciples, Emmaus travelers here today, can I encourage you to make the greatest decision of your life and invite Jesus in. Receive him as Lord. He's the only one worthy of all your trust and all of your hope. The most radical demand for the Christian faith lies in summoning the courage, the courage, the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Jesus Christ. Summoning the courage to be baptized here today. Where you publicly identify with Jesus in that water, being fully immersed, just as Jesus publicly identified with you. If you want to be baptized today, I encourage you to come over here. We have extra clothes. We've removed all excuses. I'm in my nice clothes. Guess what? We got stuff for you. Pastor Isaac will be over there around that table. Go up and let him know. Essentially, I'm telling you this. Don't postpone another day the life that God wants to begin in you today. Do not hold back on God because he is not holding back on you. How do I know that? Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen? Let me pray for you.